Good morning. My name is Thomas. I'm one of your pastors here, and uh, it's my pleasure to open up Acts 25 with you this morning. Acts 25. So if you want to meet me there in your Bible or on your phone, whatever you use to read God's Word, that's what we'll be doing. Well, like Will mentioned, it is Palm Sunday, uh, the day we remember Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem and his glad welcome by the people. Um, And of course, later this week, we'll celebrate Good Friday here at Central Campus, 6 o'clock. We'll have those services. I'll tell you more in a second. And then Easter Sunday. Now, this is not going to be uh, perhaps a typical Palm Sunday passage or typical Palm Sunday sermon, but I hope that as, as we're continuing to reflect on Paul and his journey uh, to Rome, that you'll see the many similarities between his arrest and trial and eventual death and that of Jesus, which is what we're celebrating this week. Uh, last week, Mark did a marvelous job of showing us from Acts 23 and 24 that any religion devoid of Jesus is dangerous and that procrastination is not a safe response to the prompting of God's Spirit. And Mark concluded by asking a simple question. It's one that I want to continue to to ask, continue for us to consider and continue to build on today. And he, he asked this, do you rest in the certainty of God's love and care? Do you rest in the certainty of God's love and care? Today's passage emphasizes many of the same points, and so I'm really going to be, like I said, picking up right where Mark left off. Now, you might remember last week we read about a plot against Paul who had been arrested on these uh, false charges, the 40 men who had vowed neither to eat or drink until Paul had been killed. I presume by this point they're very hungry uh, because Paul's still alive. Um, Paul ends up being protected by the Roman governor Felix, uh, but then our passage ended this way last week. Verse 27 of chapter 24 says, When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. Two years. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So Paul's been sitting in prison for two years. He's been put on trial. He's neither really been found innocent nor guilty, and nothing's really happened. He's just kind of rotting in jail. Um, And our passage picks up there. Chapter 25, verse 1 says this. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. Well, would you join me in prayer as we begin? Lord, we we thank you for this passage. We thank you for this Easter week. And as we remember your death, Jesus, your resurrection on our behalf, Uh, please make this week a week of somber reflection, a week of sincere devotion. Bring these things to mind often. Lord, let it not just be a normal week for us. Let it be a special week dedicated to you. And of course, make it a week of joyful celebration as we remind ourselves, as we must do, not only on a weekly, daily, but also a yearly basis, that you have forgiven us, that you have conquered death. Uh, You have done it all. You have kept all your promises. So thank you for keeping all of those promises. And as we reflect, give us fresh faith 
to believe your promises are true, not just for these people all those years ago, but for us today. And now fill us with your Holy Spirit as we learn from Acts 25. Lord, help us to hear what you want us to hear. Help us to feel what you want us to feel. Help us, Lord, to do what you want us to do. We pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So, the Jewish leaders have not given up on trying to kill Paul. They have gone to the new governor, and you can imagine there are probably a number of of favors that they might have liked to ask this new governor. We see that he's keen to uh, work with them, keen to have them on his side. It makes sense. And Luke tells us in that little narrative aside that they're actually planning to ambush him, actually planning to kill him. That is why they asked that little favor. Why don't you send him up to Jerusalem, a quick little trip up there, a little jaunt, uh, but of course in secret they're planning to intercept that travel party and kill Paul yet again. Um, Now, it's important to keep in mind that Festus has divided interests. This new governor who's been appointed over the province that includes the place where Paul is staying, he's interested in helping the Jews, but he's also required to uphold Roman law. And those divided loyalties will become important the further we read. Now, in the end, Festus does not grant the request. Paul stays in Caesarea. He says, if you want to try Paul, why don't you just come down with me? I'm going down there in eight or ten days. Uh, By the way, notice he says in eight or ten days, in verse six, after he stayed among them, not more than eight or ten days. I love that. That that means Luke didn't actually know, by the way. That's uh, the category of humility on the behalf of our narrator. He didn't know if it was eight or ten days, so he said it was either eight or ten days. Isn't it easy when you're recounting a story to act like you're confident when you're not actually confident? This is one of the things that gives me great confidence in the Bible. Luke didn't actually know, so he just told us instead of pretending that he knew. That's helpful. Okay, anyway, in the end, Festus doesn't grant the request. He says, come down to Caesarea. We'll try him there. Now, if you were here last week, probably you're thinking, this sounds exactly the same as what happened last week. (laughs) And that's because, more or less, it is. Uh, Last week, we had a plot against Paul, the 40 men who said, we're not eating or drinking until Paul is killed. Uh, The Roman governor found out about it. The plan was foiled. Still, Paul is brought on trial, the charges are brought against him, and he's found sort of neither innocent nor guilty. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what happens today. Spoiler alert. That is is basically the exact same trial. I'm reminded of the middle of Acts, if you remember Paul going from town to town throughout the ancient world, sharing the gospel, going to the synagogue, getting kicked out, going to the Gentiles and so forth until he's finally kicked out of town. And each week it felt like kind of the same story. And we were pressed to find details in the story that that made it tell us a different, uh, make a different point. So I'll remind you again, how can we do that? When we find two narratives that are really similar as these two are, How can we learn from it? I'm thinking not just of this moment, but as you're just reading your Bible as everyday Christians. Take note of the details. Is it actually the same? Are are there little details that are different? I'm going to point out to you a few things actually are not the same. Is there a different way that the author tells the story? Uh, Does the author bring in a different perspective, a different point of view? Uh, We'll see that that's the case in this as well. Is it possible... I'll answer my own question. Yes, it's possible that the author just wants to tell us the same thing again. And that's because we tend to forget. Okay? I'm not going to test you, but I think if we were to say, name the three points of of Mark's sermon last week, okay? I'm not so arrogant to think that you remember every sermon that we've ever preached here. We need to hear the same thing again and again and again. We're just forgetful, and God is often just being patient with us, telling us the same things again. But let's continue on. We're getting to the heart of it. Verse 6. 
After he stayed among them, not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. The next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against a temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Now, as I said, essentially the same story. This is essentially the same thing that happened last week. And I end with that question for a certain reason. Notice how Luke compresses the story of this trial. Uh, when he describes accusations made against Paul, what does he say? says they, in verse 7, the Jews came down from Jerusalem. They stood around him bringing many and serious charges. Of course, back in chapter 24, we got the whole list of those charges. We heard them, express all of them, and, and make these serious accusations against Paul. Luke knows he already told this whole story. The, the accusations have likely not changed at all. And so he just says they brought many and, and serious charges. Of course, he's bringing out the fact that this is a scary moment for Paul. Um, clearly, Festus realizes that Paul is innocent, and he attempts to do the Jews the favor that they had asked them without violating his responsibility to the Roman law. Of course, we know as readers that Festus doesn't know about the plot. He doesn't know that they're planning to assassinate him on the way. But again, Luke, notice how he gives us again a little narrative aside. He says, wishing to do the Jews a favor. Wishing to the Jews, do the Jews a favor. And this is one thing that make this, makes this passage unique in comparison with chapter 24 and 23, and in fact with much of the book of Acts. And that is that Luke is giving us several behind-the-scenes comments. Previous to this, almost every detail we get is sort of ma- what we might call mainline narrative. Uh, instead, what he get, and look back in verse 3, it says, because, see that little dash, asking has a favor against Paul that he summoned him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. And then again in verse 9, uh, Festus, off the mainline narrative, wishing to do the Jews a favor. Luke is pulling back the layers of appearances and politics and all the tensions and the personalities of the situation to give us a view on what is really going on behind the curtain, behind the scenes. What is this passage doing? Again, We've, we've heard the same story. It's helpful, it's meaningful, but it could have been accomplished in three sentences. Why is it here? What's unique about the situation is how little Paul is involved. I counted, and at least in, in my English version, Paul says 90 words in 27 verses. And you guys are good at math. That's not a lot. He's, he doesn't give a robust defense of himself. Uh, the most significant thing that he does is appeal to Caesar. We'll talk about that in a moment. But almost, almost all the words of this passage are taken up with describing and giving us the backstory of all the Roman legal and political machinery, the tensions between the Jewish people and their Roman occupiers. All of it is taken up with the behind-the-scenes action. Why, we must ask ourselves as readers, and I think we're meant to ask ourselves, why do we need all this information? Why do we need to know all the, the little motivations of each leader that's involved? Why do we need to see all this? Because in it, we see the faithful, powerful hand of God patiently protecting his people and his purposes. 
because in it we see the faithful, powerful hand of God, the invisible hand of God in this case, patiently protecting his people, Paul, and his purposes, the gospel's advance. Luke's comments and his little narrative asides, they make God's invisible hand visible to us as a reader in a scene that's full of dramatic tension where otherwise we might miss it. Luke is giving us, again, a peek behind the curtain into Paul's dramatic situation so that we can see the reality of what is actually going on. Now, let's not forget, what was this like for Paul, the Apostle Paul? I'm guessing uh, horrible. (laughs) This was a terrible situation. Uh, He has been tried previously by Felix. Remember, this was two years ago, we know now. Uh, Two years ago, he was brought before the Jewish, Jewish authorities. They made these serious charges. And the result? Meh. Go back to prison. And Felix brought him out, apparently every time and again. Why? Because he was hoping to be bribed. Okay, it wasn't a meaningful thing. He was just hoping to bribe, get a bribe. And so he's been sitting in prison for two years with no clarity about his fate, no idea what's going to happen next. And then, I'm sure he heard the news, but a new governor has come on the scene. Could be a good thing. Could be terrible. Could be a terrible thing. Uh, He has no idea. Will he be favorable to Paul? Will he be a man of justice? Will he, uh, will he retry his case? He doesn't even, maybe he's going to get chucked back in prison for another 10 years. Maybe this governor is going to last way longer and be way harsher. He just has his, his fate, as far as Paul is concerned, his fate is completely hanging in the balance. No idea what's going to happen next until he hears Festus is coming to town. Festus is coming. He's coming to Caesarea. Great. Um... And on that same day, Paul, uh, someone comes to Paul in his chambers and says, get out here, get dressed, come down to the royal chambers, you're going to sit before the governor right now. Doesn't sound exciting to me. Now, great, I'm being tried, all right. Immediately, and remember how Luke said he's surrounded by his accusers who made many and serious charges against him, though he says they cannot prove them. Imagine that scene for Paul. He hasn't heard a word out of Festus's mouth yet, and here are these accusers surrounding him, accusing him, and then the first thing that comes out of Festus's mouth is what? What do you think about going up to Jerusalem? Uh, Paul knew about the plot before, right? So he must have been thinking, okay, This guy is obviously in their pocket. He wants to bring me up to Jerusalem, and before, and this all would have been in the court documentation that Festus could have looked at, he would have known about the plot before, so he must be bringing me back to Jerusalem, doing the Jews a favor, and he's going to let me be killed. Now, here's what we're supposed to be thinking as readers as we read this. If only Paul could see behind the curtain of his circumstances. If only he knew, if only he could see the invisible hand of God moving every little bit of the Roman machinery, of the political tensions, managing the people and personalities and details. Remember when Paul's previous plot got intercepted by his nephew who just happened to overhear it? In this chapter, it's, it's, it's a little bit different, but that's what we're supposed, to, we're supposed to see. If only, that's what we should be thinking. 
You imagine there's certain movies you watch and you go, oh, if only the actor knew, if only the character knew what was going on, they would have, oh, that's how we're supposed to feel. If only they knew. One of the great engineering marvels of the Roman world was, many of you have seen, and maybe you've even gone to see one if you're lucky, is the arch, okay? Wonderful. I'm not sure if they invented it, but they probably perfected it. And the reason that the arch is so special, this is one commemorating a victory uh, of the Romans, the way that it's so special is because of the way it's able to uh, support a great amount of weight by balancing tensions. Okay, so you can see right there in the middle, that the center stone, Okay, what's happening? Engineers call this static equilibrium. I'm sure one of you as an engineer is going to come up, tell me what this really is called. That'll be great. Can't wait. But anyway, how it works is there are the opposing forces, right, that come down on each side of the archway, and by pressing against each other in the way that they design it, uh, an enormous force is held in balance. Two things pushing very, very hard against each other are held in perfect balance so that there's a strong and safe passageway through which you can travel. Uh, of course, this was used for many purposes, to transport water, to, to make strong buildings, even to make things that are just pretty uh, like that. But the point is, it made something useful. It made a useful passageway by balancing uh, two sets of enormous tension. So consider Festus. On the one hand, Festus will be in big trouble with Rome if he tr- mistreats Paul. Because Paul, as we've seen, is a Roman citizen. He has these rights, and this was very significant. Um, So Festus is going to be in trouble if word gets back to Rome that he didn't do his due diligence, didn't uphold Roman law. And so there's pressure on him. There's weight on him, weighing on him. That might make uh, make him partial to freeing him. I mean, he's clearly innocent. Now, on the other hand, uh, there's this pressure on him from the Jewish people. If, if he doesn't let his province be led into peace, and especially by forming favorable relationships with the leaders of that community, then he's also going to be in big trouble from Rome because one of his primary responsibilities as the governor was to keep a peaceful society, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. You've heard of this. That was his responsibility. And so he's favorable to doing what the Jews are asking. Weight on one hot side, weight on the other. Now consider, what if only one of those weights were there? Well, you know how archways work. It would collapse. Well, what about in this case? Well, if, if, if he were only interested in helping the Jews, what would he do? Let's send him to Jerusalem. <laughs> Let's go ahead and send him up to Jerusalem. You guys try him, and uh, I'll just kind of look the other way. And what would happen to Paul and the gospel? Dead, gone, done. Now, on the other hand, what if he was only interested in upholding Roman law? Well, he'd obviously see, as we see later in the, in the chapter, actually, he would have just let him go free because he's clearly innocent. And what would happen if he said, Paul, why not? Roman guards, you don't need to protect Paul anymore. You don't need to keep him in the prison, safely guarded, safely monitored. Why don't you just let him walk out the front door? What would happen? I think he'd be killed by the Jews who have been plotting this whole time, 40 men who will neither eat nor drink until they assassinate him. And so what's happening? Paul, in the midst of seemingly terrible circumstances, a huge weight for this, this man to act this way, to act this way, God is orchestrating all of the self-interest of each of these groups, of the Roman law, of Festus and his desires, of Felix, keeping him in prison until this moment. All of these things pressing on each other in this static equilibrium that forms a perfect passageway for Paul 
to take the gospel to Rome. Surely, Paul hated both of those things as they were happening to him, and yet if only he could see behind the curtain, if only he could see behind the scenes that these political cross-currents, these jealousies, these rivalries were actually protecting him. God was doing some just crazy jujitsu, incredible God stuff that only God can do to arrange Paul's circumstances to protect Paul and his purposes. Of course, Paul doesn't know about all this. All he knows is that Festus has just revealed to him that he is not trustworthy to uphold justice in this circumstance. He puts, it, he puts the, ball in, the ball in Paul's court, so to speak. What do you think about going up to Jerusalem? And Paul responds in verse 10. Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. Pretty bold thing to say, by the way. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing in their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered to Caesar, you have appealed. To Caesar, you shall go. And so Paul, as a Roman citizen, he did have the right to appeal uh, to Caesar, to the emperor himself, and his case would be tried. Um, this didn't, he didn't have to wait until the end of the trial, so to speak. It's not like he's appealing to the Supreme Court of Rome or anything like that. This is just one of those rights that Roman citizens had. And so the genius of this is that actually we know now, because we've seen behind the scenes, this is the only way that Paul could actually go forward on his mission. The only way that could possibly happen is because uh, because Festus gave himself away by asking this very obvious question that revealed his motives uh, to Paul. So, Luke puts us in this position as we read this story, that, that God is sovereignly pulling every string to put Paul under his protection and to move his purposes forward through Paul. And of course, like I said, Paul was not having a good time, <laughs> not having a good time. And, and when our friends are in moments like this, where they see the incredible pressures around them and they sense them, what we should be doing is sitting with them in the dirt and saying, I'm so sorry. This is awful. This is terrible. But the Lord is with you. This is awful. But here's the the question God wants us to consider as we read it. What if Paul could have known? What if Paul would have known? what we know now by looking behind the curtain, behind the stage, behind the scenes. What if if you were to know? What if you knew behind the scenes that God himself was pulling every string, leveraging every tension, every relationship, the things around you that look most scary are actually God forming a passageway strong and secure for you to walk through under his protection for his purposes. It's easy to look at Paul's situation, isn't it? It's easy to look at Paul's situation and believe, of course, God was at work. Look at Paul, intrepid church planting pioneer. Uh, many, we're probably all sitting here because of the work that he did in his life. He was faithful to Jesus. He probably read his Bible every day, prayed all the time, shared the gospel with people. That's who God likes to help, Right? the faithful ones, Paul types, but I'm me. A friend of mine uh, once faced a a very difficult situation at work. Um, She was eating lunch uh, by herself with, and and, uh, in in the lunchroom, when out of nowhere, a colleague approached her, 
and uh, just started to sort of pester her with questions about, uh, about her faith and particularly about gender and, and these kinds of things. And she felt truly in that moment like this is awful. And in the moment, it was. It, it wasn't a good situation. Um, but what, what was very interesting was that then that person left the room and, and said, oh, wow, what was that all about? When a colleague who happened to be sitting nearby and happened to be sort of listening in came up and said, how did you handle that? That, was, that wasn't really fair at all. I'm proud of you. Way, way to go. What was God doing? It was not a feel-good moment. It was not a feel-good story in the moment. But God was somehow leveraging what looked terrible into something for his purposes. That The idea we've been circling around this whole time, the idea that Mark asked us this last week, is the one I'd like to take some time to meditate on. So if there's one sort of big idea for our sermon, one thing for those who love to write things down, it's this. You can trust God to protect his people and his purposes. You can trust God to protect his people and his purposes. This is, I think, how we're meant to read this story. Paul not being held up as the perfect disciple, as the, the, you know, the best disciple, but he is what we might call a whole disciple. Someone who's taking the next step forward. Someone is seeking to follow Jesus. A faithful example of what it looks like to handle and manage faithfully the pressures of everyday life living for Jesus on his mission that every single one of us faces or must face or should face. We can, we, we should face the pressures of life with confidence that God is at work behind the curtain, so to speak, behind the scenes, manipulating every atom of worldly power, of political pressure, of, of, social, of the social environment around us for his purposes, for our protection. And yet it's not so easy, is it? Easy to say, hard to do. Um... Like I said, it's, we tend to think, aha, yes, I, yes, that's right, Pastor. For the good people out there, for the faithful people, the people that are here every week, the people who read their Bible every day this week, the people who uh, didn't do that thing I did back in 2008 that I'm sure God has not really forgiven me for. Doesn't it come naturally when you face pain and difficulty, especially especially as Paul is in the path of mission, I mean, I'm doing something good for you, God, right? That we think, aha, finally God is showing me his true colors. I knew it. I would finally come around the corner and realize he didn't really have my best interests at heart. He wasn't really going to protect me. How can we know for sure that God will be behind the scenes, working everything for my good, particularly as we move forward to accomplish God's mission, to make whole disciples, as we say here at Parkview. How can we be confident? Well, there's a hint in the passage. We need it. Uh, it's, it. It's really the heart of the Christian life. Take a look at verse 19. This is, we're going into where Festus begins discussing this. This is in the behind the scenes of the Roman machinery working. But verse 19 says this, a simple verse <clears throat> that's telling says this, they had certain dis- points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Simply put, if Jesus is alive today, then you can trust God to protect 
you and his purposes through you. If Jesus is alive, and that's, by the way, that's what we're all about this week, that Jesus has died and that Jesus is raised. The whole premise of the Christian life is this, that God would save us, not on the basis of what we have done, but on the basis of what Jesus has done in our place. Being Christian, yes, it means that God no longer sees the mess that we have made, but rather sees all of Christ's perfection in our place. And on Good Friday this week, of course, we celebrate God's free forgiveness. All who come to him uh, in humility to ask for, for Christ's forgiveness of sins, a new life through him, God will never turn you away. That is the message of Good Friday. Jesus has served our death sentence in our place once and for all on the cross, never to be redone, never to be relitigated. God is not bringing up your former sins in order to motivate you again. No. He has buried them as dead as Jesus was in the ground, so your sins are before a holy God. That is the good news. That is what makes Good Friday good. But on Easter Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection. And the resurrection matters for a few reasons. It, it means, first of all, that God has accepted Jesus' sacrifice. If Jesus just stayed dead in the grave, we, could, we would be safe in thinking, aha, Jesus was just another pretender. He had a great message to preach. He had some really good ethical teachings. But in the end, he was just a human like any other one of us. Uh, God clearly is not interested in helping him or fulfilling the words he spoke. And so the resurrection proves that, that Jesus was who he says he is. He, he did forgive sins. But the resurrection also shows us that God has radically undone death. He has defeated death. He has subverted death. Death has been defanged. Death can no longer do what it once did to us. It cannot terrify us. For a Christian, death can no longer have the power over us that it perhaps once did. Of course, we know death still matters to God. Uh, if God didn't care about life, then why, why resurrect Jesus? Maybe there was some other way we could have figured this out. But God does care. Importantly, the resurrection shows that whatever God calls us to, our future is utterly secure. Whatever death, whatever miniature death, whatever feeling of death, whatever rejection, whatever it happens to be, God is at work behind the curtains, behind the scenes. If he has done it with Jesus and we are united to him, then he can do it for us too. I had the pleasure, as I know many of you did, as I talked with you this morning, of watching the Iowa versus South Carolina women's basketball game the other night. Uh, incredible game. Way to go. Hope they can win it today. Um, but I was watching it with my little son, Jack, four years old. We are having a good time, and Jack, just, he's just a ball of nerves. Okay, we're watching the last five minutes of the game. He's just so excited. He says, oh, ah, you know, he's just jumping all over the place. He can't, can't help himself. Oh, you know, they're up. They're winning. Oh, no. Foul, you know, is she going to make the shot? Just nervous, just anxious. But I wasn't. I wasn't anxious at all. You know why? Because I was watching it on Saturday morning. <laughs> uh, and I had, uh, we were watching the highlights, the last 10 minutes of the game. And I already knew the final score. I knew the Hawks came through. I knew they won it. I knew they'd gotten the victory. It was in their hands. And really, there was, all the anxiety was gone because the end was already determined. This is the Christian life. One day, every one of us who trusts in Jesus will be jumping around and laughing and dancing our full heads off like those ladies did, knowing that we have, we have won. We have victory. Uh, everything that felt like pain in this life will melt away. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and the victory that Jesus won on our behalf will make all of our sufferings feel puny. 
this is ours. Your future is so incredibly sure, is so incredibly safe because of Jesus. The riskiest risk that he is calling you to right now will one day seem like no risk at all. If only you could see behind the curtain, if only you could see behind and beyond the grave, that the master is working his invisible hand of power. We're gambling with house money. We can't lose. We cannot lose in this life because Jesus is alive. He is alive. Now, not all of us are called to a death like his, not all of us are called, or, or, or like Paul's. But for all of us, there will be things that feel like death, things that look like death, real risks. But when we walk forward in this kind of confidence, knowing that Jesus is alive and therefore our future is secure, we can know. You can know today, now, that on the other side of every dark valley that our shepherd leads us into, there are green pastures and still waters and rest for your soul. That's where he's leading you. So let's follow him into it this week. Will you pray with me? Lord, we know. We know this truth in our minds, certainly. We probably did before today. And yet we are in need. We are needy people in need of your power to convince us at the deepest level. Lord, I know that even as I mentioned the idea that you would somehow work our pain, our sorrows for good, some of us here are still healing from deep wounds that you care about deeply. And I pray that you would just remind us of your presence and care in those. And I know for many of us, as I proclaim your call to bold gospel, faithful witness, uh, you are placing in our minds circumstances and opportunities that scare us. They are real risks. Fill us with courage. Because of your resurrection, because we are united to you, united in your death, and now united in a life like yours, that whatever risk you call us to, one day we will see that it was no risk at all because you have conquered our greatest enemy and lead us into this kind of reflection and celebration this week and bring as many people along into it as we can. We pray all of this for the glory of Jesus. Amen.